The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we truly do praise your name. Out of your great love for sinful man, you have spoken to us specifically. You have revealed yourself. You'd reveal, you have revealed creation. You've revealed the sinfulness of our hearts and the need for salvation. And you've revealed Christ as that Savior. You've told us all these things and so much more in your word. For centuries, your children have been known as people of the book. I pray, Lord, that you would bless Christ Community Church with that same title, not in name, but in life, that we might be known as people of the book. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for our neglect of your sacred scriptures. We have them in our homes, we have them on our phones. And yet the words we listen to most are not yours. I pray, Lord, that you would use this sermon and this passage to change that permanently for every believer here at Christ Community Church. I ask that you would make your word first and foremost in our lives. That everything we do, every thought and every word, would be in accordance to and submission to your word first. I know that's a big prayer, Father, in light of our approach toward the sacred scriptures. But it is your desire for us, and it is not beyond you to bless us like that. So use this time, I pray, to make us faithful eaters, consumers of your word. I pray you would do that, Lord, that we might live our lives in a matter that is most pleasing to you until Christ comes again. Do that for our church, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Jesus' followers eat the word. That might sound just a bit odd, right? As you're looking at your Bible thinking this does not look like something I'd want to consume. The Pew Research Center, they did a study on teens recently, just in the last couple months, on teens and social media. And the study revealed that teens are fully aware that their constant exposure and constant time on social media is having a detrimental impact on themselves. They know this. In fact, nearly two-thirds in this study, when asked to give advice to future teens, this is what they said. Don't use social media. It's okay to abstain. Delete your accounts before it's too late. That's from 15 and 16-year-olds. Fully aware of the impact. According to the study, 95% of U.S. teens, 95% use social media. And one-third that were surveyed said that they use it continuously. It is their life. 
The study also found a direct correlation between depression and suicide and the amount that a teen was on social media. Who we listen to, the words that we take in and consume, they matter. We know this. They have always mattered. For followers of Christ, God has not given us social media. He's given us a divine media. He's he's given us His Word. Recorded in the Bible to be the primary influence, the primary voice that we, followers of Christ, listen to and submit to and have our lives shaped by each and every day. It's God's Word that is supposed to be the primary voice in our life. Is it in yours? Is the Bible the number one voice that speaks to you day in and day out so that you not only hear but you follow? And is that evidenced in how you live your life? Those are the questions we want to examine today as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 64, 65 AD, the Apostle Paul found himself in Rome in a prison cell awaiting his execution. And most New Testament scholars believe that he was executed in that time period. And from the loneliness of his cell, he writes possibly his last letter, at least the one of the last letters that we have, to his beloved son, his spiritual son, Timothy. This is the, the second letter that he had written to Timothy, and he, and he writes it knowing that he's probably going to die soon. And so he wants to fortify Timothy. He wants to strengthen Timothy so that Timothy can not only teach and preach sound doctrine to keep the church on that narrow gospel line, but so that Timothy could encourage believers like us to know the word, hear the word, consume the word, and live according to the word. In fact, in chapter 1, he tells Timothy to guard the gospel that's been entrusted to him. In, in chapter 2, he tells Timothy to strive to be a good soldier in Christ, to be an approved workman that is not ashamed by his handling of the word. And then in, in chapter 3, which you probably know, he, he says, listen, in the end times, it's going to get really bad. Godlessness will prevail as history progresses. He writes this in verses two and four. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That verse is striking, I believe, because I think it says a lot about the Western church today. We have this appearance of godliness but absent the power that God has given the church to be the church. And then, and then Paul ends chapter 3 by telling Timothy and all those who claim to be followers of Christ how we're supposed to live in the midst of a, a godless age. And I, I imagine most of you who are even a little bit in tune with the news would say, this is a godless age. We, that age has come. We are in the midst of it. And what, what a great opportunity for us to look at the word and say, well, therefore, how now shall we live in light of this time? He tells Timothy and he tells us how to live by by simply going back to the word of God. He doesn't have a new revelation. He's sending Timothy back to not social media, but the divine media of God's holy word. And he says, if you know this, if you consume it, if you live by it, you can stay on that narrow path, which leads all the way into eternal life. In these final words, he is 
calling Timothy to continue in what he knows, to become wise in the word and to be equipped to do the work that God has given him to do. This morning, my hope is to draw from these few verses in 2 Timothy 3 so that we can know as followers of Christ how to consume God's word, how to feed upon God's word. Or as Jesus said to Satan in the desert when he's being tempted, to live by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is my desire for my life. It is my desire for our church. So let's do that this morning. Let's look at this passage and let's, let's look at what true followers of Christ are called to do. Three things. We will strive to continue in the word. We will strive to become wise by the word. And we will strive to be equipped by the word. Continue in it. Become wise by it and be equipped by it. Those are three things that if you're a follower of Christ, you say, I want that in my life. Are you ready? You said this is just, you just, that's the intro. That's all we got so far. The theme of the sermon is this. Eat the word of God regularly or be eaten by the words of the world. Eat the word of God regularly or you'll be eaten by the words of the world. So followers of Christ, first, They will continue, point number one, they will continue in the word. Look at verse 14. Paul had just finished describing what those who had departed from the faith, those who are living in the godless age were living like. Then he says to Timothy in verse 14, as for you, continue, that word remain means remain or abide in, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, we know that Timothy, from a very early age, had been trained up in the Scriptures. That, 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 um, that title given, Scriptures, is the Old Testament. And we know that because we're told in chapter 1, verse 5, that he was trained up by his mom, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. So he was, he was trained up in the ways of the faith. Not only that, he was surrounded by godly men and women from an early age, including the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says to Timothy, be faithful to what you've learned. Don't forget those that modeled it for you. Honor their names by staying firm in the faith and living as you believe, according to the scriptures. Paul says, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. That word continue means to hold on to. It means to to remain in. Jesus uses the exact same word in John chapter 8, verse 31, we looked at this last week when he, when he said to the Jews that had believed, he said, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, you are what? You are truly my disciples. And so this is not optional, my beloved. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, you are commanded by Christ himself and here affirmed by Paul to remain in, continue in, abide in the word of God. Amen? So to continue in the word is not simply agreeing to it. It's not simply believing that it's true. Most of you, I, I would argue, if I, if I asked you, say, yes, I believe this to be the word of God. To continue in it is a commitment to live by it. Regardless of the times, right? These are godless times. To live in accordance with the teachings of the word regardless of the times. To not slow down, to not turn back. To not, as Jesus said last week, diminish even the least of his commandments. Because to deviate from the word of God is to deviate from God. To deviate from the word of God is to turn away from God. And to turn away from God is to turn away from eternal life. So we have a direct correlation between the word of God and your eternal salvation. 
In 2015, I don't know if you remember this, a 7.8 earthquake hit the country of Nepal. And the epicenter was actually 140 miles due east of Mount Everest. Now what made it so amazing is that was when the climbing season was at its peak. So there were approximately 359 climbers at base camp waiting to make their way up the mountain. And there were dozens of others who were already at Camp 1 and Camp 2 when the earthquake struck. And when it hit, it triggered multiple avalanches all around the base of the mountain. Base camp was destroyed. And those who were further up the mountain, were they were stranded, they were trapped. Because to go from base camp to Camp 1, you had to go through what's called the Kumbu Ice Falls. And the Kumbu Ice Falls, if you've seen it, it's absolutely crazy. There are these deep crevices that fall for dozens or hundreds of feet, and they have ladders that they have to traverse to get to Camp 1. It's one of the most dangerous parts of the journey, trying to make it to the summit. There was one young lady on her first exhibition up the mountain. She had just made it through the Kumba Ice Falls when the earthquake hit. When everything settled, she realized there was no way back, that she was stranded now and could not get back to base camp and thought she was going to die. And so she started to hyperventilate. Well, that's not a good thing to do at 20,000 feet. Her guide, a seasoned climber with years of experience, he came to her and he calmed her down with these words. Listen, he said, if you do exactly what I tell you to do, when I tell you to do it, you will live. If you do exactly what I tell you to do, when I tell you to do it, you will live. She and the rest of her team put their trust in their guide, literally hanging on every word, and they made it off the mountain. It's a glorious story. Friends, this is what Paul's counsel is to Timothy, to hang on every word of the Bible, all that he had learned, all that he had come to know. He said, hang on those words, and you too will what? You will live. You will live. You see, in Timothy's day, there were many professing Christians we're only 30 years post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many professing Christians in Timothy's day, they were already falling away from the truth. They were already turning away from God's word. In fact, earlier in chapter two, he describes how some of the teachers were already denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though there were people who were still alive that could testify to it. In verse seven, he said, you are always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, now, we know that attacks against God's word have been part of church history, and they are alive and well today, my beloved. Some say today that the word cannot be interpreted, that we cannot arrive at an accurate interpretation of a book that's so old. Some say that the Bible has no contemporary use today, that it cannot speak to things like human sexuality or marriage or parenting or science or government, that it's antiquated. We have so many once solid orthodox churches now outwardly proclaiming heresy. Some arguing that the Bible teaches that Jesus was a good man, a moral teacher, but not God himself. Some arguing that you should read your Bible, but do not take it literally. It's filled with errors. Paul understood that everyone, without exception, everyone lives according to someone's final word. Every single person has a final word, a final authority that they live by. Parents, friends, it can be the culture. Today it's what? It's your inner truth. It's your inner voice. You believe that. 
as if that is objectively independent of all other surrounding factors. I mean, what a joke that is, right? Your inner voice is shaped by everything around you. Everything you do, every decision you make, comes down to you living according to someone's final word. And you're not an exception, even though you may want to be. The final word that not only has the power to save you, but the power to direct your day-to-day lives, Paul is saying to Timothy, it is the infallible rule of faith and practice. It is God's word. It is the Bible. Not just simply hearing it, as you're doing now, not simply reading it or knowing it, but submitting to it, having your life aligned with what it says, striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to what? To do exactly what it tells you to do when it tells you to do it. You see, my beloved, we, we live in a place that in many ways is very hard to be a Christian. We don't see persecution here like we do in other parts of the world, but it's not easy being a Christian in Silicon Valley. Lots of voices, lots of words, lots of authority figures telling us how we should live and what we should believe. But the good news, my beloved, is that even when you feel at times like you're stranded on the other side of the the Kumbu ice falls and it feels like that in your life, you have an experienced guide You have a guide who knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows what it's like to die for sins he did not commit and to rise from the dead, to overcome sin and death in your life. And here's the great news. He has spoken. He has spoken through his word. And he says to you this morning, do exactly what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it, Live according to my word and what? And you will live. You will live now and you will live for all eternity if you listen to Jesus Christ, your faithful guide. He has spoken. And so we must listen and continue in the truth of God's word. So what does it mean to continue in the word? What does that even, what does that look like for us today What does it mean to abide in the Bible? According to our passage, there are two things that I want to draw out. One, it's you will continue in by becoming wise. And number two, you continue in by being equipped. Now, I've never met someone who says, you know, I don't want to be wise. I want to be a fool. I've never met someone to say that. Most people want to be wise. Paul's telling Timothy the word can do that for you in lots of ways. And most people don't say, you know, I want to be ill-equipped in everything that I do. Most people want to be equipped. And Paul's saying to Timothy, the Bible can do that for you too. So first, we continue in the word by becoming wise by the word. Point number two, become wise by the word of God. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the scriptures of the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing we see is Paul calling Timothy to continue in the word he was already acquainted with. He he already knew it. That, That word acquainted, it's translated in other translations, have known, and that's actually better, I think. It it literally means seeing that becomes knowing. So 
Paul doesn't just know the word, it's part of who he is. It's shaped him. And so from childhood, he has grown up with the word of God. Now, you say, well, that's amazing. It, it, it is amazing, but it wasn't uncommon. Jewish parents raised their children in the ways of the faith according to the scriptures. In fact, they started to catechize their children at five years old with grand expectations of them having large portions of scripture memorized by the time they got into their teens. So they were being shaped by what? Not social media, by the divine media of God's holy word. Oh, I wish we could get back there, parents. I wish we could get back there today. Most of us did not grow up in homes like that. Most of us did not grow up being trained in the sacred scriptures, having the word of God shape us. But regardless of your upbringing, it is incumbent upon you, according to the word of God, for you to come to know the word of God. It doesn't matter how old you are when you come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. This now is your book. And God calls you to know it, to memorize it, to learn it, and to submit to it. But you can't continue in You can't remain in and abide in, as Jesus said to the believing Jews, unless you know what it says. I mean, that that makes simple sense, right? If, If it is essential for us to continue in the word, then we have to know what the word says. But how can you live in accordance with that which you do not know? And how can you live by Jesus' teachings instead of the world's teachings if you don't know what Jesus' teachings even are? And that is a great crisis for us today, my beloved, in the Western church. There are many professing Christians who know very little about their Bible. Very little about their Bible. And that's why all true churches spend so much time making such a big deal about the Word of God. Right? I mean, we, we, we preach it, we teach it, we counsel from it. If you were to come and say, Pastor Keith, i got a real struggle. I'm going to open my Bible and we're going to go to the Word to get an answer. Because every answer is in here. We memorize it, we meditate on it, we try to structure our families around it, our church around it, our work, our play on God's word so we can continue in it. Several weeks ago, we had a a visitor join us for corporate worship. He was asked afterwards what he thought of our time together. This was a lifelong professing Christian. He said, we take the Bible too seriously. We take the Bible too seriously. Now, what he meant as a criticism, I I immediately took as a great compliment and I praised God for his observation. But then I paused and I thought, do we really, do we really take it that seriously? Do we at Christ Community Church and does the Western Church take God's word that seriously? Are we that hungry for it to really know it and align our lives with it? I heard an American pastor just recently tell this story about his, his trip to China. He had just gotten back from the Hunan province to train Christian leaders in the underground church. 22 Christian leaders traveled 13 hours to get to this 700-square-foot apartment in the Hunan province to hear God's word. It's an extraordinary story. So he, he gathers these people there. There's no air conditioning. It's the middle of the summer. And for eight to nine hours a day, for three days straight, these 22 people gather and they sit on hardwood floors to hear the word preached. The pastor asked me, he says, what's going to happen if we get caught? Because he was nervous. And they said, oh, you need not worry. You'll be deported in 24 hours. 
but we'll go to jail for probably three years or more. And he asked the 22, he said, how many of you have been to jail? 18 of the 22 raised their hand. And he was amazed. He said, what are you doing here? And they said, it's more important that we hear God's word taking that risk than if it ends up our going to prison. So the pastor, he hands out, he had 15 Bibles he brought into the country. And he passes out 15, there were 22, so seven are short. And as he begins to, he tells him to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And after he says that, he sees one woman take her Bible and hand it to someone who did not have it. And he thought, that's odd. And at the break, he asked her, he says, why did you give away your Bible? She goes, oh, I have 2 Peter memorized. And he said, you do? He says, she says, yes, I have lots of chapters memorized. And he said, where, where did you find the time to do that? And she said, prison. And he said, how did you have a Bible in prison? She goes, we don't have Bibles in prison. He said, well, how did you memorize scripture in prison? She said, there were pieces of paper that we would pass around from prisoner to prisoner, and we'd memorize it. And, and he said, don't the guards take that? She says, oh, yes, that's why we have to memorize it quickly. And then she said to him this, which is profound, even though they can take away the paper, they can't take away what's hidden in our hearts and minds. So we memorize God's word. At the end of the three days, the pastor asked how he could be praying for them before he left. One person said this, Christians in America can gather freely whenever they want. Will you please ask God to grant us that same blessing that we can be like you? And the pastor said, I will not. And they wide-eyed said, why won't you pray that prayer for us? And this is what he said. You traveled 13 hours on a train to get here. In my country, if you have to drive more than an hour, people won't come. He said, you sat on a hardwood floor without AC for three days. In my country, if people have to sit for more than 40 minutes on comfy chairs and in air conditioning buildings, they leave. He said, in my country, we have over two Bibles per household. In your country, you have almost none, and yet you have the scriptures memorized. And then he said this, I will not pray that you become like us. I will pray that we become like you. That was two months ago, my beloved. Two months ago. This is the type of acquaintance of coming to know God's word that Paul is talking about to Timothy. That we have access to it and we really know it. My beloved, we have access to the word of God everywhere, don't we? I mean, you have Bibles in your home, you have them on your phone, you have them on your computer. We have more access to the word of God now than at any other time in human history. And yet, we don't know them. We are not acquainted with them. Instead of learning them and cherishing them and memorizing them, taking every opportunity to know God's word that we might continue in it and submit to it, we treat the sacred scriptures, God's divinely inspired words, with contempt. But Paul says here, you only do that at your own peril. Look again at verse 15. He said to Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's power in the word of God. As followers of Christ, we are to continue in God's word not only because it makes us wise, but it makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Now, I want you to notice, Paul does not say that the scriptures are able to give you knowledge about the salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He said they're able to make you wise. You see, my friends, what our brothers and sisters in the underground church in China 
understood that I think many of us in the West miss is the necessity of wisdom for salvation. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. You can be knowledgeable and unwise. Lots of smart people do really, really stupid things. And you say to yourself, how's that possible? You're so smart. I mean, living in Silicon Valley, we are surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in the country and maybe in the world. And yet so many of these brilliant people, brilliant people, are unable to remain married, keep their children out of trouble, or manage their credit card debt. How's that possible? Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do with the right knowledge and then doing it. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do with the right knowledge and then actually doing what you're supposed to do. It's discerning good from bad and right from wrong and better from worse and then making good choices in the context of that discernment. Now even a cursory read of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, reveals that a a sinner's only hope of being saved, the only hope of getting out of the mess of sin that we've made, is Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that imminently clear. In fact, you could read a couple books and you're going to come to that conclusion that God is just and he will judge. He will judge every single person and every single sin. And apart from Jesus Christ, apart from you putting your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of overcoming that judgment. Condemnation will be your end because only Jesus Christ, he's the only one that went to the cross and he's the only one that paid for your sin. He's the only one that made an atonement before a holy God for sinners like us to be saved, to be forgiven and brought in. He's the only one. And so faith through him is the only means of overcoming judgment and condemnation. And that's why we say grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the reformers once did. But to be, it says, to be made wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, it's more than just knowing the gospel. You need to know the gospel. To be made wise for salvation, Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to be shaped by the gospel. You need to be shaped by God's word so that you not only know how to live as someone saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but actually live as someone saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. In other words, Paul's saying it's not sufficient to know and not do. It requires knowing and doing. That's the wisdom. That's the wisdom that he's talking about. One commentator put it like this, so much better than I could have put it, so I'm going to tell you what he said. He said, wisdom is the inner spiritual apprehension, you getting a hold of it, the inner spiritual apprehension of God's word, a saving knowledge put to saving use for actual salvation. A saving knowledge put to saving use for actual salvation, doing what the word of God says we are supposed to do. You remember in Luke 8 when Jesus was explaining to the disciples the the parable of the sower and the seeds and they were confused? He makes a connection between the word of God and eternal life. Here's his description in Luke 8. Just listen, you'll, you'll get the point. He said, the seed in the parable is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes along and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. The second group, those on the rocky ground, are are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. We've seen that here at this church over the last 20 years. The third group, the seed that fell among the thorns, stands for those who hear, 
But as they, as they go on their way, they are choked out by life's worries, riches, pleasures, and they do not mature. They die too. All three of the first die. But then he says, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. Those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Born with a noble and good heart who hear, listen, please, who hear the word, retain the word, and by persevering produce a crop. Hear the word, retain the word, and by persevering produce a crop, produce fruit in keeping with our repentance. Our brothers and sisters in the underground church in China, they believe this parable, maybe more so than we do. They did not want to be those who receive the word but have no root and fall away. They did not want to be those who receive the word and are choked out by the worries and riches and pleasures of this world. And what worries they have. They were listening in jeopardy of going to jail, back to jail, for 18 of them for three years. I think that would worry some of us. That's a legitimate concern. They wanted to be those with noble and good hearts who hear the word, retain the word, and bear much fruit in their lives. They wanted to be made wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And they understood that it was through the word that they would become wise. Followers of Jesus will continue in the word. Followers of Jesus will become wise by the word. And I have one more for you. I hope you're still listening to the word. (laughs) You don't want to be convicted in the midst of a sermon that's talking about the word of God because you're not listening to the word of God, right? Point number three. To continue in the word, we must be equipped by the word. Verses 16 and 17, some of the more famous Verses in the New Testament, certainly in, in the letter to Timothy. It's a doctrinal statement. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul, it's really interesting. Paul's making an observation of the impact the Word of God has had on Timothy's life, and he stops here. And, and he, he declares a doctrinal statement about the word itself. He sees the work it's had on Timothy, and he says, I'm going to tell you what this word is. I'm going to tell you its origin, I'm going to tell you its benefits, and I'm going to tell you its purpose. And so the first thing he says is, Paul declares that all Scripture, that certainly is the Old Testament, and it would be inferred to the New Testament, that all Scripture is what? It is breathed out by God. You say, what what does that mean to be breathed out by God? It means that the word of God is inspired by God. It means that the word of God is God's word. As we said in Keech's catechism question number four, that it is God's word. In other words, God is the author of this book. And now he used men as instruments to write it and codify it that we might have it. But it's his word about himself and about creation and about salvation and about Christ and about you. It's God's word. And that, my beloved, that, that really does, if that's true, that makes the Bible unique, doesn't it? I mean, this is, this is the only book in all human history that we can say this is God's word. 
Now, many other religions make similar claims about their holy books. We know that. But only the Bible can stand up to the last 2,000 years, Old and New Testament, of extreme scrutiny, historical, scientific, and moral examination. Only the Bible can do that without failure. And if you've never done that, and you question the validity of God's word, I challenge you today to take on that endeavor. Press the word of God as hard as you want. Press it historically. Press it scientifically. Press it morally. Press it culturally. And you will find again and again it is true because it is his word. It continues even today to to stymie the unbeliever and encourage and nourish the believer. In fact, the only reasonable explanation you can have for the impact that the word of God has had on the history of the world and certainly Western civilization is that it's divinely inspired. There's no other explanation that makes any sense. Now this is not news to Timothy. Timothy was trained from an early age that the Bible, the Old Testament, and of course we believe the new as well, was God's word, the words of God Almighty. So this is not news to Timothy, but Paul was reminding Timothy and telling us that this word has power, real power. It's unlike any other book because it's God's word. And so when you read the Bible, you need to be very, very careful. It will change you. He said it has the power to be profitable for us. Did you notice that? Look at verse 16 again, the latter part. Paul says the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. One book. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, we love our libraries, but one book has this ability. And, and it shouldn't surprise us. If it's God's word, then it, it, of course it'll be profitable for man. Paul says profitable to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. He said the word of God is profitable for teaching. In other words, every single thing you need to know about life and godliness is in this book. It's an amazing thought. One book. It's not, I mean, you say it's it's long. It's long, but it's not like it's 15 volumes. I'm so thankful for that. I'd be exhausted as a preacher if you had 15 volumes. Can you imagine? All the true doctrines of our faith All true doctrines about life, about reality, are given to us by God in this book that we might know him and know how to follow Christ in this single book. And the beautiful thing Paul tells us is that if you get a doctrine wrong, if you start living contrary to what the scriptures teach, that it also has the power to reprove you. Now, we don't use that word reprove or to reproof a lot. Um, We don't use it much today. It means to refute a lie or to expose a lie. In other words, the Bible has the power when you get off track to say that's the wrong road. Get off that road, get back onto another road. And and then it offers, Paul says, course correction. So it teaches us the right road, it tells us the wrong road, and then it corrects us to bring us back. That word correction literally means to make something straight. So when you start getting off track by bad doctrine, the Bible, if you're in it, if you're consuming it, it redirects you back onto that narrow path of righteousness. It makes it straight for you again. And then he closes this section that he said it has the ability to train us in righteousness. That's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter six when he's talking about parents training up their children. 
In other words, this, the Bible, if you read it, if you consume it, it has the power to train you to live a holy life. It's your manual. It's your instruction manual as someone made in the image of God to, to follow God. The Bible tells followers of Jesus how we're supposed to live. And then he says in verse 17, so that, here's your purpose, so the man of God may be complete. That can be translated ready or fit. So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so God's divinely inspired word has the power to make us wise, to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train us. If we consume it, if we take it in, if we meditate on it, if we strive by the Spirit to align our lives with it, Paul says, you will become a good worker. The Bible, in its consumption, will make you a good worker. A, a good worker for God. Now that's, that's not, that's certainly the specific work that he has called and equipped you to do. And each one of you, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is equipped to do a particular work and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says the same thing. But to do the general work that we're called to as believers. You say, well, what's the general work? We're going to be looking at that over the next several weeks. But it's, it's prayer, it's service, it's evangelism, it's mission, it's justice, it's mercy. All the work you are called to do because you are now born again and you live for Christ. Paul's saying that God's word has supernatural power. Do you see it like that, my beloved? When you carry your Bible into the church, do you carry it and you think, power, right here? I mean, do you? When you pull it up on your, on your app, do you think, I'm, I'm tapping into God's divine word that has power to transform me from the inside out? Because that's true. Or do you see it like any other book? Or maybe a book that's better than other books, but it's still just a book. It is God's word. No other book, no other revelation has the power to make you wise for salvation. No other book has the power to teach you, to prove you, correct you, or train you in righteousness like this book. And so God expects us to consume this. He's given it to us that we might eat it so that all these great things can happen by our following what it says, that we might become good workers for God. My beloved, the importance, the importance and power of this book in the believer's life for you, I don't believe I could overstate it. I feel like I'm trying to, but I don't think I, I, don't think I can to get you to hear so that you might consume it. I believe, I do, I believe one of the reasons that Christians in the West and churches in the West are so weak, so anemic, so unproductive in so many of the good works of God is because we're not consuming God's word. I do believe we have a form of godliness but no power because the word of God is not saturated in our lives. We do not consume it as we ought. We do not continue in it. We do not grow in the wisdom of it as we should. And this is not a deficiency in the word of God, my love. This is a deficiency on our discipline to submit ourselves to the word of God. Think about just last week. How much of your last seven days was influenced directly by this book? your thoughts by this book, your decisions by this book. How about the last month? How often have you gone to it, day in and day out, saying, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. I mean, we hear that a lot in the Pentecostal movement. We want a word from God. Here's your word. 
We have lots of words from God. And they're all divinely inspired and they're all for you. That you might love him more and follow him more faithfully. Now at this point in the sermon, I know, I know what you're waiting for. You're waiting for me to tell you what you've heard, if you've been here a while, hundreds of times from this pulpit. Right? You're waiting for me to tell you you need to spend time each day in the Word. You, you need to open up your Bible and you need to eat it on a regular basis. You need to have a, a Bible reading plan or a study plan. You need to participate in our community groups where we eat the Word together. You need to join a gender-specific discipleship group where they'll eat the Word together. You're waiting for that. Maybe you're waiting for me to tell you how important these gatherings are on the Lord's Day, that we gather together as a body, and something supernatural happens here. You realize that. The Holy Spirit intervenes on behalf of a sinner like me and a sinner like you for the Word to be proclaimed and consumed fully. You might be waiting for me to say to you, listen, these days are important. Don't miss these times. Prepare in advance for it. Read the questions I send. Think about it. Read the passage. Come primed and ready to go. Hear the word. Take notes on the word and then strive by the Spirit to live out the word. After all, it's been 2,000 years now that this means of grace has been exercised by the church, the proclamation of God's word. In fact, a student of mine in my preaching class, he asked me, how important is it that we still preach today? And I was like, <laughs> he said, how important is it? We, we all have access to the word of God. Why do we still do this? And I said, it's a good question. But access to God's word does not equate to knowledge or submission to God's word. Access to God's word does not equal knowing or submitting to it. The church today is woefully ignorant when it comes to the word of God compared to our brothers and sisters in the past who had very little or no access to the Bible. We're woefully ignorant because their hunger and their limited access drove them to places like this where they could hear once a week God's word proclaimed and they ate it up. They devoured it. They memorized it. They took notes on it. They went home and they took their family and said, look, this is what the pastor said. This is what the Bible says. If you're serious about following Christ, then of course you're going to spend time in the word regularly. Of course you're going to gather here and you're going to strive to hear and submit to what comes from God's word. You're going to make Sunday a priority. You're going to consume the word personally. You're going to consume the word with one another. Of course you would. And, I, and I'm going to encourage you to do that. But the problem for us, because I, I did, I stopped. I said, can I end the sermon here? Can I end it with the imperative going to you to consume the word individually, in groups, and together? And I thought, that's not the problem. You all know. I know you know. The problem's not access to the word of God. The problem is a desire for it. If we're going to be very honest with ourselves, my beloved, it's not that we don't know or even believe. We just don't desire to consume it like our brothers and sisters in China or saints throughout the history of the church.
I'd like to leave us today the Western church's access and familiarity has led to contempt. I want us to be challenged by that. We don't hunger and thirst for it as we should. We're not becoming wise by it as we should. Otherwise, we'd be gobbling it up. I mean, we would be. We obviously don't believe that consuming it's necessary. Necessary for wisdom and necessary for salvation or we'd be saturated in it. Our conversations would be shaped by it. Our decisions would be aligned with it. Our worship, our work, our play would be guided by it. I would say our entire way of life would be subject to God's holy word. Your belief in Jesus' claim that man does not live upon bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God would be revealed by your consuming God's word regularly, daily, weekly. And you'd do that. You'd be hungry for it because you realize you really do need it. You need it. Not just a Christian add-on, but you need to feed upon God's word. There's an ancient story of one of Socrates' disciples that will bring this point home as I close. A proud young man came to Socrates one day and he he wanted knowledge. So he walked up to the great philosopher and he said, Oh, great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. Socrates, recognizing his arrogance, he led him to the sea and they waded into the water about waist deep. And he asked the man, What do you want? Knowledge, O oh, wise Socrates, the young man said with a big smile on his face. Socrates put his strong hands on the man's shoulders and he pushed him under the water and he held him there for 30 seconds. Letting him up, he asked the question again, what do you want? Wisdom, the young man sputtered. Oh, great and wise Socrates. Socrates put him under the water again, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 45 seconds. The man was gasping for air. He comes up, what do you want, young man? Socrates asked. Between heavy, heaving breaths, the man wheezed, knowledge, oh wise and wonderful, and Socrates slammed him under the water again. Fifty seconds, thrashing about in desperation, Socrates brought the man up, and he asked him one last time, what do you want? Air, the young man screeched. I need air. Socrates said, when you want knowledge, as you've just wanted air, then you will have knowledge. My beloved, when you want to consume the Word of God from the pulpit, in your homes, in our groups, like you want air, when you realize that you need it every day to make you wise for salvation, that you need it to equip you to do the work of our thrice holy God, then, and only then, will you continue in it Will you abide in it and be bathed by it? Only then will you hunger for it when you realize you need the Word of God like you need air. Only then will you be able to eat the Word of God and not be eaten up by the words of this world. Only then. I'm going to ask God right now to give us that desire because it must come from the Spirit. 
I'm going to ask him to give us a hunger for his word like our brothers and sisters in China, like the saints throughout the centuries, so that we can live as the followers of Christ that we claim to be. So that we can consume the word for our own well-being, for the well-being of our families, for the well-being of this church and the lost, but ultimately for God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask for forgiveness in the first prayer. I ask now for equipping. I have one simple request, Lord, that you would give each of my brothers and sisters a hunger for your word like we hunger for air. Give us that, Father, that deep desire to become wise for salvation through Christ, to be thoroughly equipped by your word to do the work that you've called us to do. Give us that desire to eat it, to be shaped by it. If you do, Lord, if you do, then we will truly be changed as followers of your Son. We will be utterly transformed because there's power in your word. Do that for our church, for Christ's community church. Do that, Lord, for your true church here in the West and throughout the world. Give us the same hunger that our brothers and sisters who are only separated by an ocean but not by time have for your word. I pray, Lord, that we need not be persecuted to have that wisdom to eat well now. We praise you for it, Father. We praise you that we have your word. Cause us to move toward it and to continue in it, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.